1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Courtney Freer about her new book, Rentier Islam, the Influence of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gulf Monarchies. Courtney, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. I enjoyed the book. I wonder if you could start by telling a little bit intellectually about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I'm currently working at the London School of Economics, um, in the Middle East Center and in the Kuwait program there as a research officer. Um, before that, I, I kind of have always had an interest in the Middle East starting, um, as, as young as undergrad, um, when I was at Princeton and worked on an undergrad thesis with, uh, Professor Bernard Haeckel on the the evolving definition of jihad, kind of over the years. So this started my interest in in Islamism, at least of some of some sort. Um, I then did my master's at George Washington University um, in Middle Eastern Studies again, and started focusing more and more on the Gulf. Um, I was actually doing an internship at the U.S. Saudi Arabian Business Council, so I was exposed to a bit of the kind of economic side of. Gulf-Western relations, um, which didn't interest me as much as kind of the the more political and Islamist side, um, but nonetheless was good exposure. Um, After that, I moved to Doha to work at the Brookings Institution there, and that's when my interest in Islamism in the Gulf really um, bubbled up. I had previously done some work on Islamists in kind of the usual places in Egypt and Jordan, where they provide materially for their followers and so managed to gain a following in that way. Um, and so I was curious about why no one had really written about these types of Islamist movements in the Gulf states. Of course, you know they're very different in terms of being able to provide for citizenry. But uh, I wanted to see if the ideology also had carried over. Um, I was working with Shadi Hamid at the time at Brookings uh, on Islamists, especially in, in Egypt and Jordan. And this was kind of 2010 to 2012. So there was a lot going on during that period with the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power in Egypt and – or. Yeah, and sorry. Um, so there was there was a lot going on in this period from 2010 to 2012, um, and it really got me interested in writing my my PhD thesis uh, at Oxford, um, which be, was the source of inspiration for this book. And it's about tracing the Muslim Brotherhood movements in Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE. So that's kind of how I got to where I am now.
1: Right, and the Muslim Brotherhood, of course, is one of, probably the organization that cuts across a lot of uh, conflict and dispute, not only one in the Gulf itself, of course, with the Gulf crisis, uh, but also uh, elsewhere, Egypt, as you mentioned, but even in the West where there's lots of debate about what the Brotherhood is and and whether or not it's a, uh, a legitimate organization or one that uh, in effect is uh, endorses pol- or encourages political violence.
0: Yeah, of course. And I think that debate about the role of the Muslim Brotherhood has, has really heated up in the past few years in the West. Um, I was a part of uh, the political Islam inquiry in the UK, where I gave evidence in Parliament basically talking about the The problems with conflating a group like the Muslim Brotherhood with uh, violent organizations, violent organizations like uh, that advocate for jihad. Um, and I think that there is a misconception that just because some members of the Muslim Brotherhood did splinter off and did advocate for violence, Sayyid Qutb, probably the first among them or the most famous among them, um, Ayman al-Zawahiri as well. So people think that then the Brotherhood as a whole advocates for violence, when in fact this is not the case. And since 1979, really, the Brotherhood has has been quite vocal in terms of, of disproving of violence or disapproving of violence, and um, and trying to make that make clear what their stance is. I think though, because it's a group whose ideology is a bit vague and a bit broad ranging, people don't really know what they stand for, and that makes them wonder, you know, to what extent this group actually advocates for violent change or for change of government. Um, so I think there's kind of a lack of information about what what it means to be a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think this is partly due to the fact that the Brotherhood is so localized today, that the, the Kuwaiti Brotherhood has different uh, priorities than the Jordanian Brotherhood, for instance. And I think that's something that needs to be uh, brought out a bit more so that people aren't afraid that this is some transnational ideology threatening to dis- dismantle the nation state.
1: Which really goes to the question, in some ways, what the what is the Brotherhood? I mean, is it a unified organization with uh, branches in multiple countries, or is it sort of an umbrella under which a variety of groups uh, organize?
0: It's a it's an excellent question, and I think really at this point, it's it's more of an umbrella organization. It's a group that it unites people in the sense by. It's, it's a group united by ideology rather than by structure, um, or by function even. And of course, I mean, in terms of an international Muslim brotherhood, that doesn't really exist too much formally at this point. Of course, people do know each other socially, um, because of their ties with the brotherhood movement, but there's not this international organization that I think some people are worried about, um, Particularly, I'd say in the Gulf, and so I think that really today it's kind of diluted to the point of being an ideology that inspires people, but then is is cater is tailored to um, specific specific national circumstances. And I think we see this in particular, for instance, in in the Kuwaiti case, where you see the Brotherhood very much advocating for broad-based political reform, rather than what we would expect if we're looking at a traditional Islamist platform, talking about social policies, um, reforms like uh, remove, like... Um, Potentially talking about dress codes and the restriction of alcohol sales, things like this. So I think that there is this idea that the priorities have priorities shift depending on national circumstance, and so that that reveals the debility of the international organization.
1: One of the uh, before we get into the, into the Gulf specifically, one of the uh, I think one of the big issues that you know is being debated or that's controversial surrounding the Brotherhood is that on the one hand, <clears throat> it actually advocates uh, democratic elections, but there's, a, a, at least in some circles, a lot of suspicion that it's uh, one vote and that's it. Uh, with other words, that it's, uh, <clears throat> the Brotherhood looks at, at an election as a one-time chance at, getting, uh, at, at gaining power, but then wishes to retain it at whatever price
0: sure i think there is definitely this conception that the brotherhood is kind of majoritarian in its in its conception of democracy so for instance once the brotherhood is is in power it considers itself to have the mandate to implement whatever policies it desires to implement. Um, So I think we saw this most clearly, of course, in Egypt with the Morsi government. Um, We've seen this also kind of on a smaller scale in in Parliament in Kuwait, where essentially the Brotherhood will gain a lot of seats in Parliament alongside an opposition coalition, and once they're in Parliament, then they kind of go, they kind of... um, diverge from the opposition uh, agenda and instead try to implement Islamist kind of agenda issues, such as you know banning the uh, banning. Sorry. <laughs> so they they diverge away from the opposition coalition's agenda and instead focus on social policies, which some members of that coalition would not approve of. So it's this idea that once you're in office, you have more uh, power to do to implement what you would like to implement, regardless of of whether that's something that's actually popular, so I think that is problematic, and certainly um, there's a there's kind of a, a branding a brand image issue at this point with the Brotherhood, especially since uh, the Morsi government mishandled um, mishandled a couple of issues in power.
1: One one of the things that strikes me that sets the development of the um, the Brotherhood in the Gulf apart from other parts of the Middle East. Is the fact that in in uh, large parts of the Gulf, it actually was part of the nation-building process in a sense of the of the institutionalization of the state, um, particularly in education, but not only in education.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think this is really what's fascinating when we look at at tracing the Muslim Brotherhood in the Gulf states, especially in states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which now of course um dubbed the brotherhood a terrorist organization, but in fact, I mean beginning in the 50s and 60s, a lot of times the education and judicial sectors were in need of employees and a lot of these employees came from Egypt, they came from Palestine, they came from Syria, kind of Syrian brotherhood later in kind of the 80s. And so there was this idea that these are trustworthy people that, uh, you know, they're not going to be kind of morally corrupt or bringing in foreign ideas. Um, and then I think once the Brotherhood ended up having independent power within those structures, within, for instance, the education ministry in the UAE, I think this is when these states realized that there was an independent ideological appeal of the Brotherhood. And that was something that was fundamentally uh, unacceptable to them and fundamentally threatening, I think, to their hold on power. So I think that's where we see the shift. But again, this idea of them being able to gain power from within institutions is something that is stuck with these states, especially states like uh, the UAE and Saudi, in terms of the danger of the Brotherhood, that they really can can get appeal um, from the grassroots, in a sense.
1: And that's really been, for a very long period of time, the strategy of the Brotherhood. I mean, I recall Tilmisani, the spiritual guide of, of the Brotherhood in 1980, saying to me, uh, ba- or basically describing a strategy that amounted to what was Rudy Dutchka's march through the institutions. <laughs> so, with other words, working from within the system.
0: Exactly. No, it's it's working within the system to change the system, which I think is perhaps even more, uh, even a better strategy in the Gulf than anywhere else in the world, because the institutions are so massive, and because they employ so many people, they're also somewhat effective, um, or more effective than they are in other parts of the Middle East. So I think that in that sense, the institutions really provide a great platform from which um, members of the Brotherhood were able to gain a following. Um, And also, they're able to have some kind of legitimacy in that they are employed by the state, they are Part of the education ministry, for instance, part of the judicial framework. And so they're not they're not opposition as such.
1: Right. And and yeah, I mean, one one reason, of course, you alluded to it, but one reason, of course, why the Gulf states were, were willing to take in large numbers of Muslim brothers from Egypt in the fifties and the sixties when they were being persecuted from Palestine, from Syria in the nineteen eighties was also because they were sort of like an antidote to uh, Arab nationalism and to uh, Nasserism, which the the Gulf states were very concerned about.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think... um I was talking to Stefan and her talk about the book and he, one thing that he was really shocked by was and I was surprised by this as well was the degree to which Arab nationalism was popular in in a place like Qatar um, where we, we wouldn't, I, I had no idea that there were kind of these massive um, or not not so massive because it is Qatar but these large um, nationalist protests in inside of Qatar in the 50s and 60s so it was a very real threat and I think we see it perhaps most clearly in the Qatari education ministry where there was an Arab national. Minister. He was then taken out, replaced by someone who was associated with the Brotherhood. So there was this idea that these ministries are somewhat political tools and can be used in that in that way. So I think that certainly um, squelching Arab nationalism was something that was of interest um, to these leaderships because it was, you know, kind of the the more politically active, politically engaged movement at that time. Um,
1: I want to come back to Qatar a bit later because Qatar is really in many ways a unique case. But uh, one of the things, of course, with Arab nationalism was that it was anti monarchial. So with other words, it was opposed to the whole government structure that uh, that characterizes the Gulf. And in many ways, it was uh, more secular, maybe, secular, than, than obviously the, certainly in Saudi Arabia. And certainly than Gatar in the fifties and the sixties and the seventies. Uh and, and, and so it it posed a threat on multiple levels.
0: Yes, exactly, and also was a, there were a lot of kind of worker strikes that were inspired by this uh, spirit of Arab nationalism and this idea of fighting the power, and, and I think it was yeah, it was very much seen as as, I think, more politicized than Islamism at least at that time, um, perhaps because there weren't kind of Islamists in power um, at that period.
1: Uh, one of the things also, you know you mentioned how Saudi Arabia and the UAE have turned on the Brotherhood. And it, in some ways, it strikes me that that is really much more the case in the Emirates than it is in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Saudis seem to be more ambivalent towards, even today, towards the Brotherhood. And they certainly were that at the begin to three years ago, when King Salman first uh, uh, ascended to the throne. And, you know, the question is is, and it really seems to drive in the in the Emirates on one person, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, who almost seems obsessed with this.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's funny because actually I finished my PhD thesis, which was the basis for this book in 2015. And I remember in my conclusion, I was talking about how you know now there was this period of detente about the brotherhood. The International Union for Muslim Scholars was meeting in Riyadh. Um, so there was this idea that, you know, the brotherhood was no longer an issue. And then, you know, of course, 2017 rolls around and everything changes. And I think there is a sense certainly that for the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, for Mohammed bin Zayed fighting the Brotherhood or fighting Islamism is somewhat a personal... Uh, there's somewhat a personal vendetta. There is this paranoia as well. I think in some of the WikiLeaks documents, we see this most clearly where he seems to conflate the Muslim Brotherhood with the Taliban and also with jihadi organizations. So there's this notion that any type of Islamism is fundamentally politically threatening and fundamentally an existential political threat, not just kind of an idle one. Um, And I'm not entirely sure why that is the case. I think that if we're looking at the emirati experience, certainly um, the Muslim Brotherhood there did have a lot of power, especially in the education ministry there was there were also some members of the Brotherhood in the judiciary into the late into the mid 1990s um, the education ministry minister himself was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood until the late 1980s so this is something that was in the recent history in the Emirates but I think there is this idea that if any kind of ideology will gain appeal inside of somewhere like the UAE, which is very much talking about modernization, um, this idea of moderate Islam, which is often comes along with westernization and secularization, the appeal for Islamism is enhanced. Um, So I think that this this is perhaps why Mohammed bin Zayed feels that Islamist groups, especially the Brotherhood, are so dangerous. I think also in the UAE, the federal system is interesting in that you have of course, what I call the leading emirates of Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Um, And then you also have the northern emirates. And there is this sense that in the northern emirates, especially in Ras al-Khaimah, there was a stronger Islamist sentiment. There was this idea that the periphery was not being looked after as well as kind of the the leading emirates were. And so that kind of idea of relative deprivation layered with this uh, Islamist ideology could be seen as as potentially dangerous. Um, So I think that I think you're you're right that definitely this uh, isolation of the Brotherhood and demonization of the Brotherhood is really something coming out of the UAE, and we see this through media, especially today, but even back beginning in kind of 2013 2014. Whereas I think the Saudi approach is much more pragmatic. Um, if the Brotherhood can be used, kind of to balance other other in domestic political concerns, so uh, arrest of Shia population, for instance then the Brotherhood can be used in that way and can kind of gain some... Uh, can, the Brotherhood can be given more more freedom to operate, at least to a certain extent, if it's seen as politically expedient to do that. Whereas in the UAE it's n- never seen as politically expedient to deal with uh with the brotherhood itself um so i think that that's kind of the difference the difference we're seeing there and i don't think the uae is is likely to change course I- anytime soon in terms of its views on political islam
1: right and the saudi's also uh saw the brotherhood as a potential partner uh in the building of a sunni uh, alliance against the iranians
0: yes yes certainly um And I think really only recently with the kind of arrest in September of last year of of Sahwa-linked people who were also somewhat linked to the Brotherhood, really, I think under King Salman, there was especially this hope that um, Sunni Islamists would be given a little bit more freedom to to speak, um, or at least over social media, or freedom to to yeah sorry, freedom to speak and freedom to write um and so I think that there there was this idea that it, it could have there could have been a change a fundamental change in that relationship um because they were they are a potential partner, especially i think with uh with the eastern with the population in the eastern province more and more being seen as a fifth column um with iran with the Houthis in Yemen with this kind of isolation of Iran, sunni partnerships are useful um
1: In your book, you sort of talk about the Brotherhood as an example of how opposition grows and operates in an autocratic environment. Maybe you want to expand on that a little bit?
0: yeah of course i think so i think when we talk about the gulf states and we talk about politics in the gulf oftentimes people say you know there is no political life in the gulf because you look at places like qatar and the uae where there's no parliament um there are no political parties there's you know limited freedom of speech freedom of the press so i think that people often think that there's no political life when in fact it's under institutionalized political life is what we're seeing. And that really the social and the political are very much linked in these states. And so a group like the brotherhood, which is able to gather in social uh, settings quite easily and is able to gain social trust among people is fundamentally more politically threatening than a group that cannot do that. So for instance, a socialist group is kind of only political and so wouldn't be able to gain the kind of appeal that a group like the brotherhood could. And so I think that, this idea of the social sphere being very much linked to how people think about politics, how people think about the role of the state um, is is quite important and something that people haven't looked at too in too much detail in the Gulf states. So, um, So I think really this idea of the Brotherhood being able to capitalize on people's social concerns and then say, well... I think the idea of the Brotherhood being able to capitalize on people's social concerns, their concerns in particular about creeping Westernization, secularization, things like this, then affects how people see the state and how people see the leadership of that state. So that's kind of how they're able to uh, gain a political following from something that's also uh, fundamentally kind of a social movement.
1: In a sense, the the Brotherhood's appeal in the... um a part of its appeal in the Gulf was very different from elsewhere in the Middle East, <clears throat> where it uh, relied to some extent, if not to a great extent, on its uh, social, social services. It provided and education and health care and counseling, uh, all things it didn't need to do in the Gulf because these were countries that certainly after the uh, 1973 oil boycott uh, were wealthy. And we're building, and where the social contract involved a welfare state, uh, and therefore there really was no no demand for additional social services. Uh, it, and and so in in that in that sense, its appeal had, was, and the way it appealed to, to to people was was either curtailed or or different in the Gulf. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think the brotherhood really has an uphill battle in, in the Gulf more so than anywhere else. And I I talk about this in the book, there being kind of three fundamental differences in terms of how the brotherhood functions in the Gulf than elsewhere. The first is the most important, as you mentioned, that there's not this need for the brotherhood to provide social welfare that's not coming from the state. Um, the second is in terms of organizing elections. So in places other than uh, Kuwait and Bahrain, you don't have the Brotherhood running for uh, running electoral campaigns, which is a huge part of their appeal, I think, in other parts of the Middle East. And thirdly, is this idea of providing a social safety net. So if we look at how the Brotherhood formed in Egypt, really, it was these it was people who were arriving n- newly to cities and needed kind of a a social network. And so the Brotherhood was able to provide that in a place like the Gulf, especially in in the smaller states of the Gulf, there is this idea, there is this notion of this kind of tribal tight knit social environment. And so there's less of a need for that social safety net as is provided by the Brotherhood in terms of not only welfare services, but also just in terms of providing a social network. So I think that really, the Brotherhood does face an uphill battle. And that's why this idea that that's kind of uh, promulgated or the idea that's promoted kind of by the Emirati leadership that the brotherhood is trying to take over the Gulf doesn't really make sense because it has fewer ways to do that um but I, I will say that because of the the brotherhood is not responsible for those three main functions in most of the Gulf, it can be much more flexible in terms of its structure. And it also is much easier for the brotherhood to exist underground when it doesn't need to provide materially for people. And so I think that that is how the brotherhood has managed to survive for as long as it has, at least in some form, um, in places like the UAE. And so it's, again, its social appeal really allows it to survive as a social movement um, um, during periods when it can't really be politically active.
1: Right. And, and there's also the I mean in terms of issues of identity there's a major difference between the gulf and the rest of the um, of the Middle East one because of the tribal structure of the gulf but also because of the uh, the place of religion in a lot of the gulf states and therefore identity was in some ways much more structured than it was in, in some of the other Middle Eastern states.
0: Absolutely. And I think also the, the role of, of demographics of this these massive expat populations, especially in the three states that I cover, in uh, Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE, makes this a that makes the ideology of Islamism kind of all the more appealing. There's this idea, I think that was well put by uh, some of the interviewees I spoke with in the UAE that, you know, there's this idea they're being pushed out by an expat population, which is not Muslim uh, in, Or sorry, there's this idea that they're being pushed out by an expat population, many of whose members are not Muslim. And so there's this notion that uh, Islamism provides kind of, Islamism becomes conflated with national identity, at least to a certain extent. And I think that's something unique to particularly the three Gulf states I cover here that have expat majorities.
1: Right. And and of course, also in the Gulf, you had a much more structured co-optation of religion by the state.
0: Yes. Yes, and much better funded co-optation of religion. Um, so this idea that the, the state can and does fund massive mosques, um, Quranic recitation competitions, things like this. So there's this idea that the state um, does use its hydrocarbon resources to bolster its religious legitimacy. And so in that environment, again, you wouldn't expect an independent Islamist group to be able to have any type of appeal, but it still does. Um, and I think there is this idea that, that perhaps the state uh, is promoting a different type of Islam, a depoliticized Islam, or what uh, Mohammed bin Zayed and Mohammed bin Salman call uh, moderate Islam, rather than the, the type of Islam that is, is kind of holistic and, and influences all aspects of people's lives, including the political, of course.
1: We, we touched about on it a little bit uh, in discussing uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, but you talk about certainly in a country like Qatar, but also in some of the other um, Gulf states, where it's really about personalities and their relationship uh, or attitude towards the brotherhood rather than institutional. And I wonder whether that really makes a a, a fundamental difference or not.
0: I would argue that it does, and I think this, again, goes back to the under-institutionalization of political life in these countries. Again, as you say, I think Qatar is the... The biggest, the best example, provides the best example of how personalized relationships are with the leadership and the Muslim Brotherhood. So for instance, Sheikh Khalifa, who is, of course, the grandfather of the current emir, who was actually the the first member of Al-Thani ruling family who uh, became close to Sheikh Karadawi, who is, of course, linked to the Brotherhood. And uh, of course, Sheikh Khalifa was a famous Arab nationalist. So there's this idea that he had this close religious link um, with Sheikh Karadawi, despite the fact that he was a member of a political group, which Sheikh Khalifa did not uh, approve of, presumably, um, and did not support. So I think there is this notion that if you have access to the leadership, you have um, access to to a lot more state resources. Of course, Sheikh Karadawi has... Um, citizenship in Qatar, which is very difficult to get, um, for, for expats. So there is this idea of gaining access through, um, through members of the leadership of the political leadership. And I think in, again, in, uh, the UAE, we see kind of the opposite in that when Mohammed bin Zayed decides to isolate the brotherhood, decides to outlaw them to, um, imprison a lot of members of the group that happens very quickly. Um, for In 2012, essentially, there was the, the arrest of about 96 members of the Brotherhood affiliate in the UAE. And so kind of overnight, uh, these things seem to happen. And I think this goes back to kind of an under-institutionalized political system. Um, and in places like Kuwait, you wouldn't see that so much because there are, of course, members of the Brotherhood in parliament. Right. Uh,
1: I mean, in some ways, one gets the impression that Qatar... Unlike a lot of the other Gulf states, was more amenable to some sort of synthesis between Islamism, if you wish, and and Arab nationalism.
0: Yes, I think that's absolutely true, and I think even even looking at some of Sheikh Tamim's statements somewhat recently, I, I think it. I call I call his ideology something like a Muslim nationalism. This idea that you can be a, a practicing observant Muslim, but also kind of uh, also be very much nationalistic. And so there's this idea in Qatar that the two can coexist at least to a certain extent. So I guess maybe um, Azmi Bashara, who, of course, is a famous Arab nationalist and has kind of a lot of power inside of Qatar today in terms of um, running certain educational and research facilities inside of the country he coexists alongside someone like Sheikh Karadawi, who of course no longer is as public as he was, but was very much um active inside of Qatar. And I think there is something to the notion that by hosting people who are somewhat thought leaders in the Middle East, um, you're able to uh to influence how thought is uh, produced throughout the region and you're able to shape the debate or at least be a part of the debate which i think is something huge for for a tiny state like qatar which really was only put on the map i know it's cliche to say but you know it's you know, punching above its weight uh, and kind of put on the map under under the previous Amir and Sheikh khamid and so there is this idea that by hosting these um ideologues or or influencers rather than isolating them or like, kind of uh co-opting them or sorry i think <laughs> providing a platform for ideologues and for thought leaders in the middle east allows qatar of course something of a platform and it allows qatar to be a part of the conversation in a way that it wouldn't be otherwise
1: which really goes to uh the way qatar at least certainly until 2014 and maybe even so today uh looks at its defense and and and, and security policy which is much more couched in terms of soft power than rather than hard power,
0: yes absolutely, um, and I think there is this idea uh, talk about this in the book this this notion of kabal and Morabatun, this idea of um the the sorry, I think I talk about this in the book, this um notion that Qatar could. Be, could provide refuge for people who didn't have anywhere to go on the peninsula, and this is something that dates back to Sheikh Jassam, to kind of the first Qatari leader, Qatari Al Thani leader. Um, and so there is this idea that by hosting people who are influential, you then get influence, and you're able to project that influence um, without, of course, the need for hard power. And I think we see uh, perhaps in other other countries in the Gulf this this idea that um, you know, sorry, <laughs> I'm losing my train of thought. But, uh, but, um no, I think absolutely the Qataris have focused a lot on soft power. Of course, Al Jazeera is, I guess, the best example of this, of this idea that you don't need a massive military to be able to have uh, massive political influence.
1: In many ways, it also shaped its uh, approach towards the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, you know, that are... It was a state that sort of sandwiched between Iran and Saudi Arabia, both of which in theory were friends, but were also, as is proven through the Gulf crisis, potential enemies or potential threats. And much of the way Qatar developed and the way Qatar structured things was really designed to be everything but Saudi Arabia.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think that, that Qatar really does a good job of. Of balancing uh, lots of different interests, I think Qatar does a great job of balancing a lot of different interests at once. So, I mean, for instance, up until 2009, it hosted an Israeli trade office, while at the same time, um, kind of, it, it has been an inter- interlocutor with Hamas. So, there is this idea that Qatar kind of sees itself as as able to balance a lot of different interests at once, whereas somewhere like Saudi Arabia has kind of backed the same horse, so to speak. Um, and is has been committed to kind of one way of thinking rather than this idea of balancing and this notion that uh different interests can be can be kind of uh pitted against one another at least to a certain extent. Um so I think Qatar has done a good job of kind of diversifying in its um its interests but of course um with the the Arab spring and this idea that that really they were seen as backing only islamists um which I sorry <laughs> um but So I think Qatar has, has tried to balance different interests, and I think this kind of uh, came to a head during the Arab Spring when Qatar did, at least to a certain extent, provide support for a variety of Islamist groups, not all of them linked to the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and so I think this kind of came, this ended up uh, not working out so well in the end, and, and also um, leading to a lot of suspicion from, from international actors, especially from the Saudis and the Emiratis.
1: Qatar is of course the only country in the gulf where uh the <clears throat> sorry Qatar is of course the only country in the gulf where the brotherhood has already early on in 1999 formally dissolved itself and yet it strikes me that one could argue that the brotherhood or brothers if you wish pl- uh in many ways played a very key and different role in Qatar because Qatar really never developed a religious establishment in the way, for example, that Saudi Arabia did.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think that I, I will admit that in writing the book Qatar I think is the, the most challenging case to to tease out what's happening there because of the fact that the Brotherhood did formally dissolve itself in nineteen ninety nine. Um despite that fact there is all of this talk about uh, members of the Brotherhood, members of the Salafi establishment um be having influence, especially in the Ministry of Al Koth. Um and what I found difficult was just teasing the Ministry apart-
1: of Endowments.
0: Oh, sorry, min- the Ministry of Endowments. Um and I, I think that what I found difficult teasing apart is whether people who were seen as members of the Muslim Brotherhood were actually, you know, conservative Wahhabis. So a lot of the same beliefs that would be promoted by brotherhood groups elsewhere in the Middle East are this are similar to you of know, Wahhabi um, social social uh policies. So for so when when for example um there was there was uh, when from sorry um, when, for example, a new liquor store was opened up in in Doha, um, there was a lot of backlash from members of the population about this, and people were saying, "Oh, this is actually you know a, a symptom of brotherhood influence when in fact, it could just as easily be a symptom of Wahhabi conservatism and the idea that this is a Wahhabi state at least officially, so I think it 's really difficult to tease apart where the brotherhood ends and where kind of conservative islam begins um so that was something i struggled with in the book and i think it's largely because the brotherhood is amorphous inside of qatar um and really the only kind of influence that the brotherhood can have today inside of qatar is through the the ministry of endowments through managing mosques um through not so much in the education sector anymore so really it would be through um the religious sphere and there is at least anecdotally this uh this idea that the Brotherhood does sway does hold at least a degree of sway in that sector.
1: Although you could argue that the uh, you know the the blurry lines between the Brotherhood with a political ideology and uh, Wahhabism with a the theological ideology that those blurry lines were not really unique to to Qatar, but also, for example, in Saudi Arabia. And in a lot of ways, the Sahwa, the awakening movement, which uh, which was uh, asking for reform in, in the kingdom, was a product of that.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I guess the reason that we haven't seen that difference borne out as clearly in Qatar is because we haven't seen a reform movement associated with Islamists, with um, kind of the brotherhood in the way that the Sahwa was at least loosely linked to the Muslim brotherhood in Saudi Arabia. And so I think that's kind of where the difference is that really, and and again, this may explain why Qatar's policy is the way it is. The brotherhood there has never been associated with any kind of reformist movement. And in fact, kind of the, the biggest reformist movement uh, is led by um, Ali al-Khwari, who is a self-proclaimed kind of secular nationalist um, and and not at all linked to the Islamist sector. And so I think until you see any kind of political, um, strictly political opposition movement coming out of the Islamist sphere, it's it's kind of hard to see um, what the difference is between kind of Wahhabi and, uh, and Brotherhood preferences, because in terms of social policy, they're quite similar.
1: I mean, one of the interesting things also is, and the Brotherhood plays a role in that, and in fact, if you look at the dissolution of the Brotherhood in 1999, uh, you had a situation where the Brotherhood dissolved itself uh, domestically, but was encouraged by the Gauderites to operate internationally. And, and, And it's... You, have, you seem to have this notion certain certainly since two thousand and eleven since the era of revolts but but actually before that already, where the Gutteris seem to think that they can promote political change elsewhere and ring fence themselves against it
0: yeah i uh, this idea of, of kind of the Qataris self consciously promoting islamism abroad is something that i i I find difficult to to find evidence for. I think that the Qatari's basically don't have the suspicion of Islamism in the way that the Emiratis do simply because Islamism has never, as I said, been part of an opposition movement inside of Qatar. And so there's this notion that really, if we engage with Islamists rather than isolate them, we're more likely to have a better outcome. And I think there is something to be said for that approach. Um, at the same time, I think that, uh, That this, that, that the Khalsaris, of course, have gotten kind of a bad reputation in the region for encouraging independent Islamist movements when they don't necessarily, um, kind of know what the, what these movements aim to do domestically. Um, so I think it's, it's also another, another aspect of kind of the Khalsari foreign policy angle is to what extent is it, uh, Based on personal relationships, so because there have been a lot of Islamists historically in Qatar, there at least this is what I heard a lot in Qatar is that you know people who whom the Qatari authorities would know abroad were at least somewhat linked to Islamist movements in other places, and so there was this idea that this was much more, uh, much less organized than I think is is often portrayed. that that this was kind of an accident of uh, personal ties, or at least the result, certainly I'd say, the result of the relationship between Islamists and uh, the government inside of Qatar.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to recall that when the Brotherhood was dissolved in in Qatar in 1999, (coughs) Jasim Sultan, one of the Brother leaders at the time, um... Founded an institute in London and had some activity in Egypt. That, if I'm not incorrect, was funded actually by the gutteries.
0: Yes, Jassim Sultan has a new kind of group called um, Anahda, confusingly, um, which is not linked to the, the kind of Tunisian group. But I think, there again, it goes back to this projection of soft power and the notion that uh, the Qataris are able to project more um, more power essentially through ideas rather than through um, through other means. And I, I do think also the fact that Jassim Sultan, um, I don't know m- much about kind of the funding he received, but the fact... If he did receive funding, it's reflective of the fact that the Brotherhood was never an opposition movement, that people who were members of the Brotherhood in Qatar were also, at least we can assume, somewhat close to the political leadership. And this was kind of their reasoning for dissolution. When I talked to Dasem Sultan, he spoke a lot about how essentially they had channels of communication with the political leadership, even without having a formal organization. So there was no need for this organization. Um and so there is this idea that they were, they, these were members, at, at least of a certain, to a certain extent, of the political elite, and so they had access already. And so it, it begs the question of what came first. Was it that they were members of the political elite because they were members of the Brotherhood or they were co-opted into the political elite? Um, and I think that's something difficult to, to tease apart again in the Qatari case.
1: My, my sense of the, of, the brother, of, of the whole attitude of Gutter towards the Brotherhood is that in some ways it it's it, it 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 sort of contributed to the legitimization of the regime in the absence of, of a of a, a, a powerful clergy which Gutter does not have uh, and in the absence of any real ideology.
0: Yeah, no I can I can definitely see that and and again it does go to this idea of soft power that this is a transnational movement at least in theory and so by hosting members of the brotherhood you're able to project your um power abroad. I would also say um that uh at least when it comes to the Arab Spring and the support of popularly elected Islamist movements, I think Qatar did get at least initially some good press out of out of that policy. There was this idea there were a lot of pieces coming out in kind of 2000 11, talking about Saudi Arabia leading the counter revolution and uh, not wanting Islamist groups in power, whereas Qatar was seen as this uh, kind of different type of Gulf state. Um, so I think for a while, that policy was portrayed, at least by some as as somewhat uh, democratic. Uh, and then, you know, of course, things Changed, uh, but I think that that there was some some idea that they could gain at least a certain extent of of good press by supporting these groups that were elected, rather than than fearing them. I guess is how um, then Foreign Minister uh, Sheikh Hamad bin Jassim put it: is you know we shouldn't fear these groups; we should improve, we should um, you know engage with them essentially. And that was something that that differed a lot, of course, from from the Saudi Emirati response.
1: How much did the Egyptian coup? Uh, and the toppling of um, Mohammed Morsi, who was a Muslim brother and was democratically elected, Uh, how much did that really create sort of a watershed in the way that Gaza was perceived?
0: I think that it it really drew the lines um, quite clearly in terms of pro and anti-Islamist countries in the Gulf. So if you look at the funding, for instance, Qatar had been providing a lot of funding to the Morsi government. Um, Once he was overthrown, the the new regime under um, General Sisi did not receive that funding, but then gained a lot of funding from uh, the Emiratis and the Saudis in particular. And so I think you see quite starkly there this this idea that uh, there are different backers. They're very I think you see quite starkly the division in terms of which ideologies which country um, is supporting but I do think also the the Qataris again tried to maintain the line that they supported Morsi not because of his ideology but because he was democratically elected Um, I do think that that did create this suspicion of Qatar in terms of of that it was um, that it was supporting Islamist groups I think also um, it's uh, also, its policies in Libya and Syria, which were friendly to certain Islamist groups, helped promote this notion that they were picking Islamist groups rather than picking to support democratically elected leaderships. Um, so I think, I think it, was a, it was not just the Egyptian case, but also what was happening regionally that, um, that affected Qatar's image abroad in terms of the, the idea that its preference was not for the democr- democratically elected groups, but rather for Islamist groups.
1: Right. And then there was, of course, the instant incident where Gutteris were kidnapped in Iraq and where the Gutteris allegedly paid a uh, significant amount of money to Islamic militants to, to get the, um, including Syrian jihadists, uh, to get the, uh, the Gutteris freed.
0: Yes, and and of course, people point to this uh, incident in particular in, as driving the current Gulf crisis, pitting you know, the the Emiratis, Saudis, Bahrainis, Egyptians against the Qataris. Um, there's this incident that they can point to where money did change hands with groups that, um, you know, advocate political violence. Um, and so I think there there is this idea that um, that yeah that. Sorry. Um, but no, so I think that that incident in particular did, again, draw these lines more clearly. It wasn't, I think the fall of Morsi was the beginning of of the change in how Qatar was perceived. Uh, in, you know, initially it was seen as pro-democracy, and then it started being seen as pro-Islamist, uh, even even if the Islamist group was uh, not the Brotherhood.
1: One sees a lot of post-Morsi uh, post the uh, military coup in egypt one sees a lot of soul searching within the brotherhood and and trying to figure factionalization but also trying to figure out how to move forward how much of that do you see reflected in the brotherhood in the gulf particularly with the crackdowns in uh, saudi arabia and the united arab emirates and bah- well bah- not but bah-
0: I, I think it's it's interesting looking at the Gulf. I think in places like uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the Brotherhood now mostly exists either underground, uh, in prison or abroad. Um, so there's not much going on on the ground just because it is too dangerous to do so. And the threat of arrest is very real. Again, in Qatar, the Brotherhood isn't um, technically active. So it's it's hard to know what's going on there in terms of of soul searching and and strategizing. But again, because the relationship with the government has never been contentious, there's less of a need for a a strategy in dealing with it. I think the Kuwaiti case is really interesting because I think the Kuwaiti brotherhood, especially since the fall of Morsi has been more and more willing to deal with non-Islamist opposition movements in particular. Um, To affect political reform. So there's this idea that they managed to legitimize themselves as moderate political actors by working alongside secular groups um, rather than only working with, for instance, Salafi movements. And I think that is is kind of the clearest, the place where we see most clearly a change in in terms of uh, agenda and in terms of priority. And I think this is something that has been happening in Kuwait slowly since before the Arab Spring. So it's not the consequence solely of the fall of Morsi, but I think in Kuwait, the, the brotherhood is somewhat self-consciously putting on the back burner uh, some of its social policy agenda and instead focusing on the notions of of the need for for instance, uh, an elected prime minister for a political parties law um, for the uh, restoration of citizenships which were taken away um, for political reasons. So there is this idea that they're they're kind of Islamist light um, for for lack of a better term. And you you did mention Bahrain briefly, and the the Bahraini case is fascinating in that, of course, the brotherhood.
1: I yeah, was just wanted to come to that.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The the brotherhood there is, you know somewhat linked to the the monarchy just because of the demographics, because you have a Sunni minority ruling over a Shia majority and that essentially, um, the Brotherhood provides uh, helpful political cover um, for the Sunni monarchy, um, and I think that the, the, the Bahraini leadership has been and Bahraini Brotherhood have been quite smart in terms of talking about uh, the, the Brotherhood in Bahrain not being linked to the transnational movement and being somewhat separate, um, so there is this kind of rebranding that you're seeing in Bahrain of, and I think we're seeing this in Tunisia and I believe in Morocco as well, this idea that, you know, we're Muslim Democrats, we're not the brotherhood. Um, so there is this idea of, of, rebranding, but I don't know how much that will actually affect uh, policies because in, in the case of the Bahraini brotherhood, they're seen as, you know, pro pro government party uh, at least uh, for the most part.
1: Which really goes to two things. One is, uh, uh, in terms of Saudi attitudes towards Bahrain, a degree and even Emirati uh, uh, attitudes, for that matter, uh, something of a, of, a, of a more pragmatic attitude in the recognition that uh, that the, reg- the Sunni minority regime in uh, in Bahrain really needs the Brotherhood because it is a Sunni organization and has some degree of popular appeal, in and that, in spite of the fact that. Bahrain in many ways is, is a province of Saudi Arabia.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that the way that the Brotherhood in Bahrain has reacted um, has has proven that it is politically useful. Um, so for instance, when the uh, rift with Qatar began last year, there were statements put out from members of the Bahraini Brotherhood, uh, essentially condemning Qatar and praising the actions of, of the Bahraini government. And so I think they've They've kind of seen where their bread is buttered, and and essentially are not going to turn against the the state. And I think that to a certain extent, the Saudis have done this in the past, where they've been more willing to engage with with people linked to the Brotherhood at certain political moments. Um, and n- now, of course, I think under Mohammed bin Salman, the the moment of kind of engaging with anyone with an independent source of of appeal uh, or of political authority. Uh, it's not going to happen, um, whether they're Islamists or, or business people. Um, but in the past, this has the, the engagement with the Brotherhood has not been as uh, as outrightly rejected as in the Emirates. It,
1: it also goes to uh, to something broader, which is that those who've advocated, uh, if you wish, mainstreaming the Brotherhood, with other words integrating it into a political process whatever that process may be uh that ultimately that would uh, lead the brotherhood down a path that in some ways would be comparable comparable to christian democracy in europe
0: right i i think i this idea of kind of inclusion moderation including breeding sorry I think this this notion of inclusion breeding moderation is something that's it's quite interesting. But actually, I, I wrote a piece somewhat recently about the Kuwaiti case showing that political exclusion actually can lead to the moderation of Islamist agendas. So in the Kuwaiti case, there's been a lot of upset about how the the government has handled um, the changing of electoral laws, um, the imprisonment of certain uh, people linked to the political opposition. And so this idea that the political space is closing has actually Actually, led the Brotherhood to then cooperate more and more with secular parties. So there's this idea that they need to privilege the privilege broad-based political reform over an Islamist agenda. And I think that's something that that we may see um, more and more. This idea that you know any kind of political reform is is, not, is privileged over something that is has a specifically Islamist stamp but in, i do think in terms of including or isolating the brotherhood generally speaking um there is this notion that if if the political space is not provided for them they could become violent uh and i think this that it, there is a a real possibility of that uh at least if if the state um if the state doesn't uh, manage a, a kind of complete crackdown, I, I would say though that in in a place like the UAE, I don't think you would see uh, kind of Islamist uprising of any type, just because the the group has been so um, so thoroughly kind of cracked down upon at this point, point. Uh, and there is a, a lot of fear about what would happen. Um, but I, I don't, I, in terms of in, in terms of exclusion breeding political. Um, uh, political, uh, Sorry, in terms of exclusion leading to, uh, to radical uh, political behavior by Islamist groups, I think it, it's possible, but I think it's hard to know the timeline um, in which that would happen and the political circumstances in which it would happen.
1: I mean, Egypt is uh, another one of these examples where the Brotherhood was for many years underground. And when it was then allowed, not as an organization, but it was allowed to participate in elections either as independents or under the flag of a uh, of a secular party, it actually proved to be quite pragmatic.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, there is this idea that, and this is, again, something that makes people suspicious of the Brotherhood, is this idea that, well, do they do they actually... Want to implement an Islamist agenda, or do they just want to gain votes? Um, so they kind of can't win in a sense because if they're seen as too Islamist, they're seen as you know wanting to uh, create a theocracy. And then if they're um, seen as too pragmatic, they're seen as wanting to take over the system um, or to, to infiltrate it and then uh, and then advocate for um, for policies that would convert the state into a theocracy. So I think it's it's difficult um, in terms of choosing the right strategy. Um, I will say that that they've been pragmatic in terms of, especially in in the Kuwaiti case, in terms of not running for a lot of seats in parliament. Um, The most seats in parliament, the Brotherhood in Kuwait has ever, one is six out of 50. And yet there is this idea that the Brotherhood is the um, most organized and the most powerful political movement there, at least in, in some respects. And I think that goes back to its social power and its ability to mobilize people in the social sphere.
1: Courtney, we could go on for another hour. Unfortunately, we don't have we don't have another hour. It's it's a fascinating subject and one that's going to be in the headlines for some time to come. Uh, in the meantime, where are you where do you go from here after publication of this book?
0: Um, well, I'm now working on a little bit more work on. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm now working on a few articles linked to the political capital of tribes in Gulf states. So I think that. One thing that I've always wanted to look at are ways in which this rentier arrangement is undermined, and groups that can undermine this um the, the the largesse provided by the state uh sorry um I've been interested in looking at groups which undermine the idea of no taxation, no representation, the notion that um that the provision of social welfare leads to political quiescence so I looked at Islamist groups in this book and now I'm working on looking at how tribal groups undermine this arrangement as well and hold independent political capital even in these rentier systems. So that's one big project I'm working on. I'm also looking more deeply into the political role of Salafi groups in especially in Kuwait um, because there are a lot of different political blocks linked to Salafism, both kind of, of the more politically active and of the more politically quiescent varieties. So that's another project I'm working on and those are kind of the main the main things on on the docket for now.
1: Great. Well, this sounds like a fascinating project and the role of the tribes and also how they accommodate in a new world in the 21st century. And ADAPT is one that's uh, particularly relevant and fascinating. Thank you very much for the conversation today. And thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed it and wish you all the best.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed speaking with you.